Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 74 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and this instalment of the show is all about professional golf. No, not the game where the ball goes too far and the course setups are awful. We're talking about the trade that is being a golf professional. Where and when did it start? And what has been the contribution of the various men and women who work at the coalface of the game over generations and centuries? Our guest today is retired PGA professional and passionate lover of the game, Billy Detlaff, who's accidentally written an extraordinary book on this very topic. Intriguing stuff. We'll come to that in a moment. Before that, however, let me introduce my co-hosts for today. From the US, writer, TV commentator, course designer, critic, podcaster and blogger, Jeff Shackelford. Jeff, it's going to be nice to trace the roots today of a very important group of people who have been and continue to be crucial to the history and development of this great game. Absolutely, yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing how a book this uh, extensive becomes accidental. That should be fun. <laughs> it's a, it is an interesting tale. I had a bit of a chat to Billy yesterday when we were setting up the Skype. I'm looking forward to, to it as well. From here in Australia, also a writer and commentator, but best known for his course design work and playing background, Mike Clayton of the Ogilvy Clayton Cocking and Mead course design firm. Clates, I'm assuming you're a member of the PGA here in Australia, and even if not, I'm sure you're aware of what your brethren have meant to the game over a very long time. Hmm. I am a member. We had to um, we had to join when we were tour players, we had to also join the PGA, which was kind of a well, the PGA here did what happened in the late 70s, what happened in America in the 60s. They The players broke away from the hmm. club pros and but eventually they rejoined here. That's Unlike right. America and Europe, we're, we're all now one again, which is probably better. Yeah, that's exactly I guess that's right. to do with the fact we don't have a tour anymore. So you, <laughs> that's, that's what worked out. Really? And, and nor do we have any club jobs left. So it's, uh, it's worked out no. terrifically for both sides. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure we'll come to all of that at some point. Looking forward to chatting to you about this today. And now to the man who's brought us all together today. Billy, Billy Detlev is a second-generation PGA professional, taking after his father, Henry, who was also a member of that erstwhile Organisation. He's a former director of golf at TPC Sawgrass, among other impressive entries on his resume. But more importantly, what we want to talk to him about today is his recently self-published book, Doctors of the Game, A History of the Golf Profession. Billy, great to have you aboard. Thank you for taking some time. Thank, thank you, Rod. It strikes me, Billy, that it really undersells this work of yours to call it a book. It has a daunting physical presence, judging by the photos. Why such a high-end and expensive presentation? What made you sort of decide on that? Well, um, the game of golf and the profession has been great to my family. My father became a golf professional in 1921. I followed in his footsteps. My son now is in the business. My stepdaughter's uh, part of the PGA of America education faculty. She's a PGA member the last uh, 20 years. And when I had an opportunity to take an early retirement from the PGA tour and the TPC network, I decided I wanted to take my former uh, PGA master professional thesis and try to turn it into a book. And uh, I anticipated it might be 250, 300 pages and might take me two or three years to write, but uh, (laughs) it ended up a a near seven-year project and uh, it was edited down to 450,000 words. (laughs) Goodness me. And it's really uh, my gift uh, back to the profession, my, my thank you. And one of the taglines that I use for the book is honoring the past and inspiring the future. It's, it's my hope that uh, the book can be a genesis for uh, improved education within the PGA profession on our history. You've yeah, t- you've understanding the, hot... the past, I believe, can make for a better game. Most definitely. You've touched on a hot button issue for Mike Clayton there. I'll come to that in a moment. Interestingly and importantly, I think, Bill, the book is called A History of the Golf Profession rather than A History of the PGA. Is it important to separate the organisation, because we'll hear those three letters constantly during our chat today, and the people who are its members? Well... Um, Here in in the United States, the PGA of America just celebrated its centennial in uh, 2016, but the profession dates back to uh, the autumn of uh, 1842 when uh, Alan Robertson was recognized uh, as setting himself apart from the rest of his cohorts uh, and became the first golf professional. So there's a lot of history before 
the PGA was formed uh, 1901 in, in Britain and in 1916 here in the States. 1911 here, I think, for us, Clates, uh, after a bit of a stir at the Australian Open out at Royal Sydney, if I'm not mistaken. The professionals got together and decided that they weren't being oh, treated well. That would be a surprise if there was a stir at Royal Sydney at the Australian <laughs> Open. There was, a, there, was a, there was a big stir there in 19, 1969 when they wouldn't allow players' wives or the boss of the PGA or uh, anyone else in the clubhouse except the players. So wow. that was Lee Torino came out and played and came down to Melbourne the next week and said, wow, it's nice to be out of Sydney. <laughs> did, did, was that the week that he left Melbourne saying, uh, take a photo no. of me now? Because you, you weren't no, seeing no, me that, going no, back. That was, that, that was 1974. Uh-huh. No, they played at, he played at Yarra Yarra in 1969. He played with Orville Moody. I watched him play there. Wow. Uh, Billy, you really need to talk to Clates for your next book. He is a book uh, in himself. You touched on it there, I suppose, Billy. We're, most of us who sort of, grew, well, obviously born in the 20th century are used to having the PGA. How was it decided before there was a PGA that somebody was a golf professional? Was there any, in those early days, was there any criteria or did you just, a bit like golf course architects, did you just hang a shingle over the door and say, I'm a golf pro now? Well, um with Alan Robertson, he was a fifth-generation feathery ball maker, but he was also an outstanding caddy and the premier player of the day. And the, the genesis for the profession was the autumn meeting at the Royal and Ancient of St. Andrews, uh, and uh, they put up, the members put up a small purse for the caddies to play for. And the, the caddies got together as a group and uh, decided that Alan would win the purse and, and no one else would have a chance. So they all voted to leave Alan out of that event so that the rest of them could have a competition. And uh, that is kind of the point of, uh, of the beginning of the profession because it also recognized that he was the first to use his playing skills, his caddy skills, his teaching skills, uh, as well as his feathery ball making skills to make a full um, living from the game of golf. So that's kind of how it's measured or recognized. Jeff, it brings a bit of a tear to the eye, doesn't it, to hear about that very first exclusion of a golf profession in a game that went <laughs> on to have an extraordinary history of doing that to professionals, as Clates has just outlined, for a very long time. Well, uh, yeah, and I'm curious to hear what uh, Billy has to say uh, in his research. Who, who would you say or where did it turn for the golf professional, Billy, from going from, from being these people who were sort of uh, degenerates uh, leeching on the game to being the, the, the valued people that they became at, at a golf facility? Well, um, Jeff, I, I would say, you know, it was an evolution over about 50 years leading to the formation of the British PGA in 1901. Um, it, it was a, a, a hard and difficult fight. Uh, the profession gained recognition because of the great matches that were played mm. with Alan Robertson, his his uh, one-time apprentice playing partner, Tom Morris, later known as Old Tom Morris, and uh, some of their favorite f- uh, famous matches with the Dunn brothers, Willie and Jamie Dunn from Muscleboro. Right. And really, you know, professional golf grew in popularity because of the coverage of these great matches. And it's it's interesting that I, I kind of liken it to uh, the professional sports today. The, the, the backers from St. Andrews felt they had the best player or players. Mm. Muscleboro felt the same way. So they put up a purse of maybe a thousand pounds for these players to play against and, and the coverage in the newspapers through the the 50s and the 60s and the 70s created an interest. But then the real big change in, in golf took place with the Industrial Revolution, and uh, which led to more and larger factories, which led to workers' rights, which led to more specified time off and vacation time. And then also with the Industrial Re- uh, Revolution, it led to railroads and the creation of, of, um, of resorts like St. Andrews. And uh, the game just became pa- popular and blossomed over that 50-year period. But, but the golf professional was still fighting for recognition because yeah. they were considered lower class. They were, they right. were work, working class. Mm-hmm. 
Victorian. I just want to back up a little bit, Billy, because you, you mentioned something, and Clades, I'll come to you on this, and you've spoken about this before, and I know that you've come across various players in your years at Pro-Ams and tournaments and guys that you've played with, younger people, Clades, who don't have an understanding of the history of the game. Now, what did, you wanted to institute a rule, didn't you, at the PGA? I think you said it offhandedly, but it's an interesting idea. If you don't know Peter Thompson's 1-5 Opens, you're not allowed to be a member of the Australian PGA. Talk about the importance of maybe understanding the history for the professionals that come along today, Clades. Well, I just, it always amazed me because I always read a lot about golf and I read all the history books and I assumed everyone else did the same and it amazes me that kids have no idea who Peter Thompson is or when there are young kids in Australia who have no clue who Bruce Devlin was or David Graham or, and it just, to me, it smacks of a lack, a, a lack of interest in the game aside from their own almost irrelevant playing part of it. They're players, but... They're not actually interested in golf. So, you know, just it's always amazed me that people were never interested in the history of it because it's such a... I mean, apart from the fact that there's so much great writing about golf, it's, it's a fascinating history to learn about how it all evolved and how it all happened and how the game changed and how the... You know, I mean, how the, the, the split between Morris and Robinson over the ball and all that stuff fascinated me. But the longer I went, the more it seemed that not many others were that interested in it. But yeah, I, mean, I think to be a part of the PGA, you should be able to write a 500-word essay on the career of Kel Nagel or, the, or Peter Thompson or you know David Graham's history in golf or what Bruce Devlin did in America or, or even Greg Norman. I mean, now there are kids who kind of don't even know who Greg Norman was. But although we, we see a lot of them with his shirt off, shirt <laughs> off now. So. I was going to say that if yeah. they're on Twitter, they might, they might be yeah. more familiar. Yeah. Can you imagine, Jeff Shackford, can you imagine being a spectator at one of those exhibitions? I've often thought about this, you know, Morris at Robertson versus the Parks or whatever it might have been. Can you imagine being at one? What an extraordinary event that must yeah. have been to yeah, watch so, that. Some in. of those old films, uh, yeah. the, the British Bathe films are really great for kind of dreaming of that. But actually, Rod, I think what I, I'd be curious, one, one thing that I, I, I'm curious where, where, where Billy uh, comes down on this or... or uh, in his research cover this when I go to uh, the shops that are still left uh, Forgan or, or remnants of them and old Tom Morris's shop at St. Andrews what you you think about is uh, uh, the people who used to hang out at these shops for lack of a better phrase and the role the pro played and the shop played uh, for uh, educating people, kind of getting to the points, telling stories, uh, uh, explaining to younger golfers uh, why it's a great game or why you do this or how you grip a club this way. Um, it, it, and Billy, I mean, would you say that the, the shop the, is, is integral to kind of the story of uh, the, old, the, the evolution of the golf pro as, as it is uh, as anything else? Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. And, you know, it makes me... Uh, reminds me of the stories of old Tom Morris taking a chair, sitting outside his shop in the evenings in St. Yeah. Andrews with his dog sitting next to him and people just coming up to to meet the grand old man. And he would share the stories of, of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 1800s and, and stories of his departed son, young Tommy. But it was, it was people like old Tom Morris who nurtured the golf professionals who ended up coming to the United States to help create the game in the United States. His uh, shop foreman was James Fowlis, and four of Fowlis's sons, is, is, along with James, came to the United States. C.B. McDonald wanted a golf professional for his new Chicago golf club, and uh, James Fowlis Jr. came over and, and established that. Uh, Donald Ross was sent down to, to work a summer with old Tom Morris. Uh, Robert White, the first president of the PGA of America, his father was a clique maker in St. Andrews and learned from old Tom Morris. So it's these generations, the Hutchinson brothers, you know, Jock Hutchinson, the first American to go back to Scotland and, and win the Open Championship in 1921. So it's you're, you're right. It's it was this nurturing. It was their great love for the game, that uh, that built the game. Wow. Extraordinary stuff. Four hundred and fifty thousand words edited down to. I think you said 
Billy, which is remarkable to think about. We can't possibly cover all the things you touch on in the book today, but who were some of the characters, perhaps, that stand out to you in, well, the gift that Scotland gave to the world, really, golf? And we chatted briefly yesterday when we were sorting out how this whole Skype thing works and whatnot, and we, as you do, we went off on a tangent, and you told a story about the family tree that you've got in the back of the book that goes from, you know, uh, all the way back to the 1800s in Scotland right up to Butch Harmon, you know, who coached... Greg Norman and Tiger Woods. It's an extraordinary... There's some lineage in there. Who are some of the, the standout names or the names that really jump out at you of what's of making this game what it is? Well, you know, certainly Alan Robertson as the first, I think, is a remarkable story. Uh, we spoke a little bit the other day. Oh, tell, you yeah, know, tell Clates it, about that. Uh, I didn't know whether you know this, Clates. Billy, tell Clates what you told me yesterday about Alan Robertson. Well, Alan Robertson in, in uh, 1858 after he transitioned over to the gutta percha ball from the feathery, um, set a new course record at St. Andrews. And the, he improved the old course record by four strokes. And the local St. Andrews newspaper wrote that they doubted if the score could ever be matched again. It was such a phenomenal score. <laughs> and he shot a 79, the first person to break 80. Mm. Uh, known in golf to shoot that score and, and i think that's been improved by a few strokes since then but it, it, it was a, <laughs> a, a remarkable of, score we're waiting for the first 59 i was thinking more actually billy did you tell me that alan robertson's brother dave came here to australia is that right yes yes did, did um, you know that clates no i knew that davy strath came here he died here in melbourne but no i didn't know his david robinson came here hmm. alan robertson had a younger brother david and yeah. uh, and he emigrated from Scotland to Australia, and uh, uh, I have been told, I have a couple of gentlemen in in Australia who uh, purchased the book and have shared some things with me, uh, Des Tobin and and Don Dunn, and Don was telling me that uh, uh, David played some matches maybe as early as the 1850s, 1860s, uh, uh, and... um, He's trying to track down the background and, and the history of that. But uh, I believe he, he he did pass away. He lived the rest of his life in Australia. But okay. golf as early as the 1850s, 1860s in Australia is what I've been told. Jeff, can you make a note of the time and date? This is the first instance I can think of where Clates has not known something about Australian <laughs> golf. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, Clates, but I, I, I was interested to know whether you knew that because I'd never yeah. heard that. So, um, uh, Well... well I know Des Tobin, who who ran the biggest funeral business in Australia, still does, but um, which is growth industry. Yeah, what's yeah. a growth industry, Clay? So you know, yeah. um, Tobin Brothers, they're legends down here. But uh, yeah, a friend of mine traced Davy Strath came down here, who played the famous matches with Young Tom, and he had TB, and, and, he, and he was told to go to Australia, and he he, he actually made it to Melbourne, and but he died within a few weeks of making it here, and. Noel Terry was his name. Noel finished up finding his unmarked grave in the Melbourne General Cemetery. So with, um, who was the guy who wrote the famous, David Malcolm. David Malcolm wrote the famous history book in on, on St Andrews. He actually came out with the RNA, donated some money and they fixed the grave up and oh, wow. put a stone on it. So, um, yeah, it was it was surprising who came out here. So yeah. there's another one. Yeah, we, we touched on it, didn't we, yesterday when we chatted, Billy? I wanted to just go back a bit. We mentioned there about you know young people perhaps not knowing the history of sort of uh, the profession of golf. I, I kind of like that rather than just sort of the PGAs or you know that re- more recent sort of history. I know that from this from this book. Well, okay, let's get to the, the accidental nature of writing this book. You did a master's PGA thesis on sort of the history of the golf profession, did you? Which didn't touch the sides. Uh, Billy, and that's what ended up leading to this some 20 years later. Yes, uh, back in the late 1980s, I I submitted my master professional thesis in uh, uh, 1988, and it was 116 pages uh, at the time, and and I always kind of felt that it was uh, incomplete, So, so having the opportunity to take early retirement opened that door. I uh, actually approached Wally Uline from Akushnet and asked Wally if he'd be interested in in uh, working with me on the project. And Wally uh, loves history and uh, loves golf history. And uh, they were kind enough, Akushnet, to 
hire a PGM apprentice as a uh, intern for me for about 18 months who did a lot of my early research. And they also covered some of my travels. I was uh, lucky enough to interview about 14 golf professionals or family members of, of golf professionals that I've included in the book. Uh, and they covered those travel expenses. So uh, a big thanks to Kushnet Golf for believing in the game and the history of the game. And the other thing that's come out of it, Billy, is that I think you've now put together for the PGA, because they didn't really exist, as Clates has already outlined, doesn't exist here. Nothing in the PGA syllabus, when someone goes to become a trainee and eventually goes on to, to graduate and qualify as a fully-fledged PGA professional, there's nothing in that syllabus about the history of the profession, is there? There's a couple of throwaway lines about the history of the organisation, but not much about the history of the profession itself. Yeah, and I touched upon that. You know, unfortunately, my father passed away when I was just six years old, and he had this wonderful history in the game dating back to 1907 when he first became a caddy at the age of nine. So when I went into the PGA education program, I was anticipating that I'd have a history segment and that I would learn more about the era when my father was a golf professional, and unfortunately, that was missing. That was one of the reasons I chose the the subject for my master professional thesis. But I was lucky enough to have the PGA um, choose to use a portion of, of my writing as the text for their centennial book. They used about 40,000 words. But since then, I've been working uh, with Paul Levy, the current president of the PGA of America, has endorsed the concept. And I'm pleased to share that the PGA of America, starting uh, next fall, they are updating their professional golf management program. They're going to call it PGM 3.0. And I've given them, a gifted them, uh, uh, 72,000 words and about 60 images on the history of the game and the history of the profession. That will become mandatory reading for uh, future golf professionals here in the United States. So it's going to be about a three to five hour read. Uh, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll have better educated and more aware golf professionals moving forward. Pretty important stuff, isn't it, Clayton? I mean, it's easy to sort of say, oh, you know, that's the PGA. But that's pretty important. That's a good step forward. It'd be nice to see the PGA in Australia do something. Because I don't think there's a history component in the traineeship here. I know you didn't do a traineeship, Clayton, but I don't think there is a, a history component. No, there's not. There? And there should be. There should be. Just yeah. a basic kind of, you know, read about the game and find out where it came from yeah. and what what was important. Yeah. It's easy. Jack, Billy? Yep. Sure. Uh, can can I, uh, I I I'd like to uh, if we could uh, uh, fast forward and use your your insight into the history of the, the the golf professional to get your assessment of where things are uh, today and where the where the golf professional is and what kind of things ha uh, have I mean in my view that the golf professional has been undermined by not being the place to or the person to buy your, your equipment from any longer. And I'm curious if that's a fair assessment and, and uh, where you see things headed for the profession. Well, there certainly has been, you know, over the 175-year history of the profession, there has been a change. In the beginning, it the professional made his main living from manufacturing the golf balls and the golf clubs, as well as teaching and a little bit of playing uh, I mean, even the greats like the triumvirate, uh, Harry Varden, they relied on a club professional position in order to make a living. Tournaments were, were just a, a sidelight for them, an important sidelight, but a, a sidelight for them. So um, when mass production came into being, the, the, the craftsmanship changed in the 1890s to more of, of selling equipment mass-produced golf balls and assembling clubs and equipment for probably 20 or 30 years. And then the huge change came in the 1920s uh, with the shift to the uh, steel shaft and the creation of what was called matched sets of clubs. And, and the golf bag went from six to eight clubs in a golf bag to 15 and 20 and 30 clubs until the USGA had a state that 14 was going to be the maximum size. It was during the 1940s that uh, uh, another big switch took place when so many golf professionals were working in factory jobs or mm. serving in the service 
their right. wives came into the shop to start serving. And it was the wives who brought soft goods into the mm. golf shop. Oh. So the business kind of changed um, over the years to it became more of a merchandiser. Um, so it, it's it's interesting. I, uh, I'll give you a little sidelight, if I may. Sure. I interviewed Manuel De La Torre uh, up at Milwaukee Country Club. Manuel first took his position at Milwaukee Country Club in 1952, retired in the 1990s and was still teaching up until his he passed away just a year ago. And I, I asked Manuel what his philosophy was as a golf professional. And to Manuel, the most important single thing he could do was to teach. And this is what he believed. He believed if I can teach the husband how to be a better player, he's going to want his wife to come out to the golf club and he's going to want her to take lessons and she's going to become a better player. They're going to want their children to come out to the club to enjoy the game that they love. And if they do that, they're going to buy their golf balls from me. They're going to buy their golf clubs from me. They're going to stay after the lesson and have a drink or two. They might even have dinner. So that's one philosophy, but I think it's a great philosophy that Manuel shared is that the golf professional has an opportunity to, to form golfers and to make them better players and to give them the ability to enjoy the game more. And I think that's one of the key parts of a golf profession is that interest in his members and to make them better players so that they enjoy the game more. You still have to be an overall good business person, but I think it's 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 teaching, it's helping to run great tournaments for the members, it's uh, helping them to fit clubs. To me, with the new launch monitors and things that have come out mm. in the past 10 or 15 years, it's bringing the artistry of club fitting from the 1800s and the early 1900s back into the game. You're not necessarily manufacturing the clubs, but again, you're bringing more enjoyment by making sure the right clubs are in the hands. So the golf profession is is still very broad and you can specialize in the business because I believe certain clubs look for certain things. Some want great teachers, some want great merchandisers, but overall it's bringing that excitement to the game. And, And as we touched upon earlier, it's going back to that old Tom Morris philosophy of, of, of sitting on the chair in the evening and, and telling about the history of the game and talking about what's great about the game. And especially with young players, the juniors, building that energy in them that they, they want to be part of what is a great game. Yeah. You could see you doing that, Clay. You could see Clay's doing that, couldn't you, Jeff? Sitting outside the shop telling Gray was what he does here and on other podcasts. So, and I can see him doing thing. it with nobody listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now. He's I mean, sure that easily. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I do. I mean, Clay, I don't know about you, but I, I uh, a big part of my development was that there was a golf shop and there were fun people kind of hanging around and we, we conversed and 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 the, you interacted with the pros the assistant pros the head pro and i i uh to me that's something that that really struck me in doing some research on old tom shop and then thinking about um you know it, what started there and how that evolved into into golf everywhere and i i worry that that's something that will be be lost uh if, if we're not careful the appreciation because it's not something really tangible you just know it's there and it's a safe fun place and and it's part of the it's just been something that's been part of the game yeah that was how i got it it was i've spent so much time with the kid who was well he was only three or four years older than i was but he was the assistant pro at the club i played at and we spent so much time hanging around in the back of the pro shop just you know fixing clubs and just talking about golf and yeah it was a great way to get into the game and i mean now i don't know what it's like in america but Golf pros have turned into bureaucrats in Australia, really. You take the green fees and do the handicaps and run the comps. And, you know, you're right, Billy. I mean, I mean to me, the, I've often said it here, the sole purpose of the, not the sole purpose, but the main purpose of a club pro is surely to make the members play better, help them play better golf. That's what his job is, really. Not to, you know, be taking green fees. And, you know, any kid can do that. But get out there and teach the members how to play better and, get better clubs in their hands and regrip their clubs and get the right lies and lofts and all that stuff that no one does anymore. Well, and, and, and that's really what I feel is at the heart of the book. If, if I, I hope more golf professionals 
have the opportunity to read the book and study it. There's over a hundred biographies and, and uh, profiles on players, but I, I wanted to let them know what success has been through the decades and how much the love of the game can be seen in successful golf professionals. And a successful golf professional doesn't have to be the person who's at the most famous golf club in a city or a state. A, a successful golf professional can come out of a small municipal golf course, a nine-hole facility. You know, it's 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 that love of the game um, that I tried to transmit through these biographies and stories that I, that that hopefully will inspire the future generations. Some of the most passionate people you meet in this game, aren't they, Clates? Other club professionals, PGA professionals, and particularly those who never. I mean, I suppose it's a stereotype. A lot of people think of the club professional as perhaps a, a, a player that didn't make it. That's not really true, is it, for a lot of them? They're just passionate people about the game who never really aspired to play, just wanted to be around the game and a part of the game. Not all, but I reckon some of the most passionate people I've ever met in, in golf have been club professionals, PGA members. Yeah. Yeah, well, well the most amazing one, we've doing some work at Shady Oaks, one of the most amazing club pros I've ever seen is Mike Wright down there, who's, who's kind of, the keeper of Hogan's legacy a bit, but I mean, there's a guy who just, I mean, it seems like he runs that club. Such a popular guy who loves golf and respected by the members, great teacher, great merchandiser, just everything a club pro should be. I've been amazed how, how well he does his job down there. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm the best I've ever seen at it. Yep. Nice. I can share one, one individual, um, his name is, is, is Bob Nye, and uh, Coach Nye passed away about two years ago, but uh, I was so pleased I was able to get the interview on, on videotape with him. And Coach Nye uh, was at a uh, golf course uh, or at a university uh, as, as a soccer coach was the reason he was hired, and they had a small nine-hole golf course that was built in the 1930s on the, on the university property, and they asked if he would consider coaching the golf team and, and running this little nine-hole golf course. Well, over about 30 years, Coach Nye coached the team and made it into the NCAA Hall of Fame for soccer as a soccer coach and as a golf coach. He produced out of that little nine-hole golf course 18 golf professionals, including three of his sons. Uh, one son is the golf professional at Marion. Another son is the uh, golf coach for over 20 years at Penn State University, and the third son uh, is out in Idaho, Idaho at a premier facility, and, and that's the example. Coach Nye, his focus was on developing young people, caring about them and caring for the game, and I think it's an amazing story that out of a little nine-hole golf course, 18 golf professionals were created, and uh, and off to some of the finest facilities in the country. Yeah, fantastic stuff. One of them, just I'm sure, dozens and dozens and dozens of fantastic stories, Billy. We haven't even scratched the surface, but uh, we'll uh, we'll wrap it up there, I think. So the, the book is called, tell me what the book is called and how they can go about buying it. The book is entitled Doctors of the Game, A History of the Golf Profession. And uh, it is self-published. So I have a website that if you're interested in learning more about it, it's simply doctorsofthegame.com and uh, love for people take take a look at it and they're welcome to contact me with any questions they might have no, I've, got to, I've got to say Billy right. having seen the pictures I've seen of it Jeff I'm sure you'll agree even if you're not into golf if you're just a lover of books my goodness what a time it looks to be Jeff what does it weigh 10 oh. pounds or something Billy it's a extraordinary uh, the book uh, itself is a little over 9 pounds wow 696 pages fantastic well wonderful stuff and congratulations a, a labour of love and I think as a golf digest story they're always more about the, the labour than the love but uh, congratulations fantastic and hopefully uh, lots of people go out and buy the book terrific effort Thank you very much. Thank you, Billy. We'll let Billy go now. Thank so you, Billy. There'll, there'll probably be an awkward uh, and unfortunate sound here, but I apologise for that. Oh, I've accidentally just given Billy the flick. Um, yeah, interesting stuff. I, I think I agree. I, the thing I like about that, Clates, is the notion that there's now going to be sort of a <coughs> history component in the education at the USPGA. I think that's fantastic and, and uh, good yeah. on Billy for doing that because I think you're right. It's a crime that you could be a golf professional and not know who Peter Thompson was or, or what he did. 
here in Australia. Speaking of players and high-end stuff, Jeff Shacklin, I'm going to come to you first. Two interesting Tiger things, of course, the announcement that he's going to come back and play. Uh, but yep. the podcast he did with, I'm not going to, is it Gene Oriema? I know he's famous yep. in America. I'd not heard of him before. Yep. Uh, what did you make yep. of the chat with Tiger? I thought there was some really interesting and really quite nice, very human stuff in that one well, hour and four Yeah, he's minutes. letting his guard down, which is fascinating. Uh, and maybe he knows Coach Gino pretty well. It sounded like they've they've spent some time together, and Joe LaCava is very close with uh, the coach. And the coach is just one of those people you can tell he, you know, he's not a natural podcast host, but he has a natural ability to uh, get you. Well, he has, first of all, he just asked a few things that were, were really blunt. Um, if, if, a, if a practicing golf writer had asked a few of those questions the way he did, they Tiger probably would have hung up the phone, but <laughs> he just went right along with it. It was fascinating. And it could also just speak to the state of Tiger that he maybe he's uh, clean and sober and, and feeling good. And, and, you know, he's been feeling lousy for a long time with his back and that, that can make you irritable. So yeah, he just opened up. And of course the, uh, he could have just kept going on and on about technology. That was hilarious. He just, uh, he was, he wanted to get into every sport, the different analogies of, of, uh, of, of changes that have happened and, and things that have done been done to address issues and how golf hasn't done that. And I, I thought the most interesting, I don't know about you, if you guys uh, listened to it, but the, 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 the insights he had on tennis where uh, they've, they've made changes with the ball and uh, to, to accommodate the surfaces and the athleticism and the different changes in the game to keep it interesting. Uh, he clearly has talked to people in tennis and made a real, you know, he's a fan of tennis. He, we know, but, He's clearly asked questions of people, and uh, I mean there there was a there was a lot in the pod. Uh, I thought his and and he's picking on the strategy of the way the uh, that was brilliant. The young wasn't guys it? was was and and it was fa- I mean that was just fascinating. Yeah. So he was very open, but um, I, I thought obviously the ball stuff was the most interesting. I thought so and, too. Uh, on a personal note, didn't you love the story about his kids <laughs> calling him a YouTube player? <laughs> Yeah, I really haven't seen the, no. him at his best. Um, and I, I, you kind of get the sense that's one of the things that's uh, fueling his desire to come back because I think we kind of all agreed that he lost the desire, which injuries will make you do that, or just playing for a certain length of time and then not being able to play as well will make you not want to play anymore too. So, I mean, just all the things coming together are just really fascinating because let's be honest, most people had kind of, written them off and yeah. and it, it, you know after all the comebacks and and suddenly to hear somebody who sounds rejuvenated sounds a little feisty and uh kind of wants to to show some of the young guys or show his kids that he can still play i i think that is uh gosh that i just hope it i hope it pans out because it'll be so fascinating i agree and those of us that are fans i think i'm a tiger fan unashamedly so and i suppose i'm grown up in that era. Clayton, you're a bit different. I know you're not that you're not a Tiger fan, but there are others you'd prefer to go and watch than Tiger. You've said before you'd go and watch Seve any day before you went to watch Tiger. Well, there's a lot of people not like that. What do you make of all this comeback? And I know you listen to the podcast because you always keep a keen eye on the game. What do you make of the whole Tiger Woods comeback? This one feels a bit different. I think Jeff wrote a piece last week that really sort of spoke to me, which was Jeff Shackleford, was that, you know, this one feels different. His attitude is different. It has Jeff's just been saying everything about this feels different to the last couple of times he's come back from injuries and surgery. What do you make of the circus? Well, only he knows how he feels and how he's in the ball. I, mean, I spoke to Finchie last week who saw him play uh, back at the medalist, and he, he thought he was playing, you know, not the same speed or power that he had. But I mean, Finchie's comment was, well, and it, and it wasn't being derogatory to Jason Duffner, but he said, you know, if Jason Duffner can win a major, mm-hmm. Tiger Woods can still win a major with the game he's got, because there's no difference. You know, I mean, Jason Duffner doesn't play any better than Tiger Woods does now. So that was Finchie's kind of take on it. But um, yeah, I mean, I I love watching Tiger Woods play. I, I just love watching Seve play more. But I mean, I saw Tiger hit some. You know, Hoy Lake, that last 36 holes was extraordinary. The last 18 holes at Beth Page in 2002, which I watched, was incredible. So You walked with him there, oh, didn't yeah. you, Clates? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. yeah that, that two only hit into the 13th hole will forever live in my memory. It was extraordinary. 268 yards in a cold and damp and just flew it all the way to the middle of the green with a... And the thing would have gone over a skyscraper it went that high, but... So, you know, extraordinary player. I mean, we all want to see him play decently again. And I, I, only he knows what he's capable of. I mean, we're all guessing at 
how he's going to hit the ball and how his body feels. But you know, I think everyone would be fascinated to see him come back and play well. Yeah. I because sorry, I mean, I mean, watching that playoff in Vegas yesterday, you just know that at some point, with all those guys missing that green so often, he would have got it on the green. Tiger would have got it on. Mm. Yeah, it, 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 I mean, the first hole halved in bogeys. I mean, I'm mean, sure the hole was difficult, but Still. I think Tiger Woods would have let a playoff go with halving it in bogeys. It certainly wow. uh, seems unlikely. It doesn't it speak those in some ways quotes to what you were saying yesterday. There's a, there's a multitude of threads to pick out of what might be going on in Tigers. Well, but it feels to me like there's two things that may be motivating. One, as Jeff said, the kids. Two, this is the first time he's really been challenged in a golf sense. For so long, he was the undisputed king of golf. And that has yeah. now completely changed. I wonder whether that's a motivation for him. It gives him something to prove. But as you just said before we started recording today, Clay, you played a tournament this week, first time in a long time. You don't know how you're playing until you tee it up in an event, do you? He still has that. Uh, that's the next step for him, isn't it? Yeah, but, but that's the fun too. I mean, well, the fun is, in the, is being in the competition. It doesn't sometimes seem like much fun at the time, but you, you, you never know how you're playing until you play in a tournament. I mean, you know, and, and you hear that story, you play with blokes in pro-ams and, well, I can't believe it. I played so well yesterday that it's a complete lack of understanding of how different it is to play for real. As opposed to just playing for fun, and playing for fun's important because that's what ultimately golf should be about. But playing in a tournament is the only real way to find out how you're playing, and you know the, the only way for Tiger to find out how he's playing and what he's capable of, and for the world to find out what he's capable of still is for him to tee up in the tournament and play. So, you're so I think everyone hopes he plays well. Yeah, uh, most most definitely. We don't know, but he's still the most compelling figure in sport, isn't he, Jeff? I mean, polarizing. Lots well, of people of course, compelling because yeah. they hate him, but uh, still uh, by far the sure. most compelling. You know, I think so. Uh, interesting. Speaking of tournament play, we know you played this week, ladies. How did you play? You better let the listeners know. You're at the New South Wales Senior Open, which was a fantastic example of what golf can be—a you know, regional centre in Australia, down on the border there between New South Wales and Victoria at Albury. Played at the Faguna Golf Club. Ian Baker Finch in the field. Peter Senior in the field. I know you're too self-deprecatory to admit it, but you, know, you in the field. And Michael Harwood and yeah. Roger Davis. Craig Perry. Craig Roger Perry. Davis, yeah, what a fantastic event for a golf fan to be able to go and see for free. It was good. It was good fun. They could walk on the fairways. There were a few people who turned up. It was it was good fun. I played. I did it first. I got on the. I had an eight footer for a seventy four on the second day, and I went to put my ball down and couldn't see the coin and stuck my hand in my pocket and the ball and the coin were in my pocket. Uh, that's really, that's a really annoying thing to do, but, um, on it. sorry. At least you didn't fall on it. I was going to say on the yeah, upside, it won't go true, viral yeah. quotes. Yeah. So <laughs> Again, I said, to Pete, I said to Pete, I said, what do I do here? I've got the coin and my ball both in my hand here. And he said, well, you better take a guess and put it back and have one. Add one. Yes. Add one. So, so, I kind of played roughly okay, nothing great, but you know, it's just fun to hit good shots under the pressure a little bit. I, I really I enjoy it. And, and Pete, I played with Pete Senior the first two days. He played shot 68, 69. In the end, he shot 74 the last day and lost by a shot or, or a couple of shots. But um, Peter still plays as well as he ever – well, not as well as he ever played, but he still plays really well. He's a tremendous player, Peter Senior. Extraordinary tenacity. I mean, if you, any any person in the world who wanted to go and become a golf professional or a player, go and watch Peter Senior. Just the tenacity and the determination, Clayton. He's got an odd-looking swing, I guess, particularly sort of for the modern era. I mean, it's, it's got a strange sort of look to it with the finish. But, boy, oh, boy, he hits the ball fantastic. But just – there's just no quitting him, is there? Yeah. Even at 50, well, he, 58 now, he still hates to make a bogey. 59, yeah. He, he, he whinges and moans as, <laughs> under his breath as much as he always did. Poor old Junior's wife just sort of shakes her head and oh, shut up, Pete, and get on with it. But um, he's a tremendous iron player. Wow, he's a, he, he, he rarely misses a fairway and he, he, he hits the ball around the hole all day. He's a, he's a terrific player, Peter. Yeah. I mean, one, we, we spoke about it a bit. Uh, and he, and he spoke about the courses he won on after he was 50, but he won the Australian Open, the Masters, and the PGA after he was 50. But all on courses that didn't uh, give a huge advantage to guys with the ball a long way. So the Lakes, where there's almost no advantage to a long hitter, apart from a couple of holes, but you know, Coolham and, and Huntingdale, where courses where, where you bounce the ball on the ground and it's windy, and there isn't a huge advantage to hitting the ball a long way. And, 
to win those three tournaments when you're over 50 is pretty amazing, really. Oh, <laughs> and absolutely extraordinary. I was there for the, the oh. one at Huntingdale, and that was just an extraordinary. So it's probably a little bit Australia-centric, that. But Peter Senior is one of... He is just a phenomenal golfer, and uh, probably did, it's a shame he didn't win more internationally and become better known. I suppose that brings us neatly, Shaq, to, uh, for well, those playing... Oh, sorry, you, you've got something there, you... Yeah, yeah. Now wait a second. Now we we, we can't we can't uh, I pass up this opportunity that Tiger has given us to one help those having the drinking game out there. <laughs> That's exactly what I was about to say. Yes, <laughs> you guys kind of brushed this off. This is a big deal <laughs> to have Tiger just blatantly come out and say what he said. Now he has no, he, no, he no, has this, as I had to go back and document today because it, it's amazing how many people. You got me thinking about this with Peter Senior. How many people said, "Oh, he's just saying that because he he can't hit it as far anymore, and he he wants to keep the game competitive with himself?" And mm. I was, I said, "Well, I understand that reaction, but let's go back and look, look mm. at the record. He actually kind of danced around this for over a decade. He just was more blunt this time because I believe because he's actually had to design golf holes and probably went, "Are you kidding me? We can't." We can't fit a course on this property, uh, you know, at, at this yardage or whatever he's had to deal with. Um, but he's been I – th- I always thought, Clates, in his prime, that he shied away from the discussion because the opposite reason, people would have thought, oh, he just wants to go back to a ball with more spin because that just is better for him because he's a shot maker and he's a, better, he's a pure ball striker. Now, it's hilarious, a decade later – He's being accused of bringing this up uh, because because he's going to be a short hitter, so he can't really win. Is the point? But um, I, I just think it's uh, it's it's something that's going to get a lot of people's attention. Already has already has just yeah. go by mm. news feeds, mm. and uh, whether it 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 changes things, I I don't know. But it certainly has gotten people's attention, maybe who weren't paying attention to this topic. So the question becomes then, Jeff, will it have? Hello? Some sort of impact. Yeah, you there? Who have we lost? Well, I, I'm what? here. You're there? Clates, you still there? Clates. Yeah, oh, I am, but I, yeah, but I missed most of that. Oh, no, you didn't. That was, you vintage, heard before. <laughs> it was vintage Shackleford. That's a shame that you will, missed it. Yeah, will it have an impact? I think, I think it will have an impact because uh, it's one more person that the governing bodies know will be on their side. You know, it's one thing to have Jack Nicklaus on your side. He's been saying this forever. And Arnold Palmer and Gary Player have all made comments that they can always be referred to. But to have Tiger Woods, who's a different generation, out there saying this and making the case very eloquently um, and using his knowledge of other sports to make analogies with other sports, it's very, very powerful stuff. And I think it's something that we, uh, we, we should appreciate that he's done. And, and of course, there will be some who, who accuse uh, him of, of making this case uh, for, for any number of reasons. Uh, but it, 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 and that's fine. He doesn't, I, I, I sensed in his tone in the podcast, he just doesn't care. It's just his opinion, and that's how he feels. There was something really interesting in there, Jeff, that I noticed that he, he said, and this seems to have been glossed over, oh, the USGA are looking at it, you know, and they're asking about this. Um, do you reckon he's been talking to the USGA? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, hmm. forever. Well, if you go back and look at those comments that I uh, re-highlighted today, uh, going back to 2005 and seven and all that, he, uh, he's always had discussions about this with uh, Mike Davis and, and Peter Dawson, and uh, I think he has long supported them. Uh, in their in their research and the fact that he had you know he had some he gave away a few specifics on different things they've tested now he also has links to bridgestone and it's believed bridgestone has helped uh develop prototypes for the governing bodies i don't know that for a fact but that's kind of been the sense um so i think that that he'll be accused of having some inside knowledge that way but uh who cares you know it's it's clearly something that they have if you ask they'll tell you they're testing these things and um, they've been doing it at public golf courses and taking people's feedback, and they've been doing it with golf professionals. and And I think it's uh, fascinating that they're doing that. 
Uh, well, Jeff, it does look like we've lost Mike Clayton completely, sadly, particularly given that uh, I particularly wanted to ask him more about, for the first time in 50 years, uh, picking up his ball marker and putting it in his yeah. pocket. You know, this game That's never really leaves good. you alone, does it? 50 years at the game and he's found a new mistake to make. That's, uh, oh. <laughs> well, at least he didn't hurt himself. No, that- that's exactly right, or his pride or his, uh, his reputation. Wow. Uh, Shaq, <clears throat> we'll wrap it up there now. There's lots of stuff, I think, still to talk about with Tiger, and I think that's it, it's encouraging. It's a really interesting story to unfold, not just his golf game, but some of those other things we discussed earlier about. You know, he's, He just seems happier and more outward and a bit cheeky and uh, more laid back and friendly Tiger, uh, genuinely, would be a wonderful thing for him. The statesman era of his career may go on yeah. to define him in the end, perhaps. Um, well, and he's knows enough about golf history and and um i think to to realize that that is sort of a role that you take on and i i uh, knowing that he i think he'd like to show off his knowledge of history so it's uh, uh and and uses uh his his gravitas to to make some change i think it's outstanding lots have said it do you reckon that assistant captain's role at the two cups has been instrumental in that i wonder whether he sure. didn't really realize how the players viewed him until sort of getting up close with them, some of those younger players in particular, uh, in that team yeah. environment, and just has to, yeah, yeah, it has everything. to inspire. It has to uh, yeah. kind of get the juices flowing again. Uh, and then, as he laid out in that podcast, so too, he also he also sees uh, openings where, oh, look at that! Look how they play the game. Oh, I can I can still do it a little bit better, I think. And so it's a combination of everything. Mm-hmm. He gains respect for them. He he uh, gets confidence in his own abilities and uh, remembers kind of what he did well. And, and uh, th- those team events seem to do that. So it's fantastic. Tiger Woods, still the biggest story in golf. We'll, uh, we'll wait to see how it plays out. Jeff, it's been, uh, well, well, first we'll say thanks to Mike Clayton. Appreciate you coming along, Clayton. It's a shame we lost you uh, <laughs> towards the end there. But Jeff, it's been great to chat to you. It was great to chat to Billy. Um, yep. I think that's yeah, that was great. amazing what he's had. And I uh, look forward to your company again next time that's it for episode what did i say 74 of state of the game um and not too bad what are we six weeks after the previous ones that's not bad for us Clay. yeah no shack so we'll try and get uh, back on that timetable again looking forward to your company when we come back with episode 75 here at state of the game state of the game is a talk and golf production theme music writer's retreat provided by lloyd cole visit www.lloydcole.com for more information For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.